You're tuned to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The following program is a rebroadcast of Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill. Welcome to the inaugural broadcast of the Miracle Hunter, where it doesn't matter if you're a believer or a skeptic, it's always worth the hunt. My name is Michael O'Neill. I am the Miracle Hunter and the creator of the website MiracleHunter.com. I'll be your host for the next hour as we dive in and explore the world of miracles. We have an amazing show today to kick off the program. I'll be interviewing the always informative Jimmy Aiken, a senior apologist with Catholic Answers. And later in the show, we'll be talking to Dr. Kelly Bowring, a dynamic speaker and the best-selling author of The Secrets, Chastisements, and the Triumph. Before we get into the show, I want to briefly introduce myself and then we'll get to the interviews. For the past 15 years, I've been researching miracles and cataloging them on my website, MiracleHunter.com. I'm a mix of a believer and a skeptic. I love a good miracle, but want to make sure there's sufficient proof to believe. My background in science makes me closely look at any alleged miraculous event with doubt, but I love a good miracle when I can find one. Whether I'm speaking at a conference, answering emails, or just talking to friends, people often ask, now how did you get started? How'd you get into this? This isn't really a normal thing to do, after all. Well, like many good inspirations in one's life, this one came from my mother. Following what we considered to be the miraculous conversion of my grandmother to the Catholic faith due to the intercession of Our Lady of Guadalupe many years ago, my mother taught me and her school children the story of Juan Diego and his tilma. Year after year, she'd re reiterate this story. I came to regard it as the second greatest story ever told. In college, in an archaeology class, my curiosity was still there. I ended up writing about the tilma for my final project. My secular professor wasn't so thrilled about the topic choice, but those hours in the library, they changed me forever. When I started to learn about the mysteries of Guadalupe, I also learned that there is an incredible history of the miraculous in the Catholic Church. You know, we've all heard of Fatima and Lourdes, but I was stunned to find out that there have been over 2,000 such miraculous stories of apparitions from all across the globe. Many of these have a certain traditional level of approval from the church, and some are still popular devotions today. I looked at all this data, and boy do I love data, and I promised myself that someday I would return to this study. Well, as I approached graduation in my senior year of college, as all students should, my mind turned to what I was going to do with my life. I got some great advice that I'll never forget from Condoleezza Rice, who was then the vice provost of Stanford University, where I was attending. She said, whatever you do, become an expert in something. That always just stuck in my head. Whatever you do, become an expert in something. She went out to say that she was an expert in some small aspect of German military history in some year and that she was sure that she knew more about that little topic than anyone else in the entire world. Wow. That was her sliver of the universe, and she owned it. Well, I racked my brain to figure out what I could study, what I could become an expert in. What was interesting and important enough to me that I could devote my attention to it? Well, my mind went back and forth to those hours spent in the library poring over all the stories and legends of miracles. A brief internet search led me to see that there wasn't a lot out there, except for a few incomplete, overly pious websites. Having the passion and the design skills to do it, I set out to create the internet's top resource on Marian apparitions. 
15 years later, I think I've done it. It's called MiracleHunter.com. Each week, I'll be asking a trivia question and giving out a prize to a caller that gets the right answer. This week, we'll be giving away a framed image of a piece of artwork entitled The Faces of Mary. It is a photo mosaic over 100 images of Our Lady that forms a large, beautiful picture of the Madonna and Child. Uh, you can see the image on the website MiracleHunter.com. Uh, trivia questions are generously provided by an organization called Catholic Pub Trivia. Uh, they partner with local Catholic churches, schools, or religious organizations, and they hold fundraisers for those organizations at local establishments. For more information on Catholic Pub Trivia or to organize an event in your area, please visit CatholicPubTrivia.com. So here's the question. Uh, it relates to the Virgin Mary, of course. question is, what Marian Apparition movie won the award for Best Picture at the first Golden Globe Awards in 1944, along with four Oscars and eight more Oscar nominations? Again, what Marian Apparition movie won the award for Best Picture at the first Golden Globe Awards in 1944, along with four Oscars and eight more Oscar nominations? If you know the answer, please call into the show with your answer, and we'll reveal the winner later in the show. And for more information on Catholic Pub Trivia, please visit catholicpubtrivia.com. So each week I'm going to try to cover any newsworthy items in the world of miracles. Sometimes there'll be something interesting, sometimes there won't. But if there's anything hot, uh, we will definitely cover it here. So this week uh, we're going to talk about uh, a news uh, relating to Medjugorje. Uh, this week, as many as you are aware, there were some interesting developments regarding the most famous of Catholic alleged miracles, that being Medjugorje. So I know I'm certainly speaking to an audience that is well-versed in these matters, but for those who don't know, in 1981, several children began reporting apparitions of the Virgin Mary in Medjugorje, which is a small town in Bosnia-Herzegovina, and it's part of the former Yugoslavia. Since then, over 30 million pilgrims have visited. Oh, so we have a caller, Dan, who would like to share his experiences about visiting Medjugorje. Go ahead, Dan. It's kind of a kind of a ironic that you brought up Medjugorje because I have a Medjugorje story that I'd I'd, I'd like to share if uh, if that would be okay. Sure, go go right ahead. Okay, well, great. Well, in 2009, uh, I and some members of my parish went over to uh, to Medjugorje, and at the time, my uh, mother was passing away with uh, with cancer. And uh, the day of the uh, Mariana's apparition, uh, I got word that I needed to uh, to come home uh, as quickly as possible. And I was able to, before leaving, um, got the rosary that uh, Mariana used during the apparition. And uh, because she knew our tour guide real well and he knew my situation, so I was able to uh, fly home with it. And my parents that. Uh, had uh, said the rosary together every night for 54 years, were able to have their, their last rosary together using that actual rosary that was used just 48, 72 hours earlier in the, uh, the apparition uh, before my mother went unconscious and passed away. So, you know, that, that was always something very special for my family. And I always, I always knew, didn't feel, I, I knew that uh, something like that doesn't happen by by chance, you know, there's a uh, there's a direct uh, uh, intervention, if you will, 
to uh, give her that peace and, and, and uh, her reward in her final moment. So I just wanted to share that and see if you had any thoughts on it at all. Great. That's a, a beautiful story, Dan. Thank you for sharing it, and I'm sorry to hear about your mother's passing. Um, there are many stories out there of people having gone to Medjugorje uh, and having incredible experiences. Some of them are uh, just prayerful experiences. Some people claim miracles. Um, but in in whatever case it is, people go to honor Our Lady, and it sounds like when you went there, uh, that's what you were doing, and bringing the rosary back was uh, sort of a special moment for your family. So thank you so much for, uh, yeah, for sharing. Yeah, really, it really was, because, I mean, it was almost a trip that I didn't go on, knowing that she was so sick, but, you know, she urged me to go, and I think that was kind of uh, her and my family's special reward, uh, like I said, in, in, in her final moments. So I just want to share that, uh, and good luck with the show, Mike. Thanks very much, Dan, for that call. There certainly have been many people with positive experiences coming from their visit to Medjugorje. Now, getting back to the news item that was generating so much buzz. So the details are that the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, Archbishop Gerhard Müller, he asked the Apostolic Nuncio to the United States, which is the Vatican ambassador to the United States, to send a letter to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. So this letter is dated October 21st, 2013, and it deals with the Medjugorje phenomenon, and he asked that the letter be sent to all U.S. bishops. Now, this letter appears to call for a more restrictive policy than the Holy See has insisted on thus far. Some people are saying that there's nothing new here, but others are calling it a bombshell and a portent of a larger official negative judgment. So with us today, we have Jimmy Aiken, who's a senior apologist for Catholic Answers. His popular blog is featured on National Catholic Register, and his website is jimmyakin.com. His recent article on this subject is entitled 14 Things to Know and Share About the New Letter on Medjugorje. We welcome today Jimmy Aiken. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, it's, it's sort of been an interesting week uh, regarding Medjugorje, as you know, and you wrote a, an excellent article that's uh, on National Catholic Register about it. And um, what what can you tell us uh, about what happened here? Why did this letter come out? Tell us a little bit about the letter and, uh, and, and what there is to know. Yeah, um, the letter was sent at the request of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. That's the uh, Vatican doctrinal agency that Cardinal Ratzinger was head of before he was Pope Benedict. And the current head of it, uh, Archbishop Gerhard Müller, um, asked that a letter be sent to all of the U.S. bishops, uh, telling them uh, about basically how certain Medjugorje-related events are to be handled in the United States at the moment, or are to be handled. That actually doesn't signify the United States in particular, but that's who the letter was sent to. So what happened was the uh, Papal Nuncio to the United States, that's basically the Vatican ambassador, uh, Carlo Maria Vigano, drafted the letter and sent it to the head or the general secretary of the USCCB, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, and then he distributed it to all of the U.S. bishops. The letter says that the occasion of the letter is uh, connected with the Medjugorje seer Ivan, who has a residence in the United States and who also had some uh, speaking engagements planned, some public appearances planned for October 
of this year, so just a few weeks ago. And um, it was expected that he would be receiving or reporting uh, apparitions during those public appearances. And the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith was concerned that they would be just taken for granted as this is authentic phenomena, uh, or these are authentic phenomena at these public appearances. And so what they did uh, in the letter was they, they stressed that although the Vatican is currently studying uh, the Medjugorje phenomenon, it nevertheless, uh, the the decision of the former Yugoslavian bishops in 1991 that it can't be asserted that there were genu- genuine apparitions going on in Medjugorje is to be accepted by all, according to the letter. And consequently, <clears throat> it said neither clergy nor faithful are permitted to participate in events where the Medjugorje apparitions are taken for granted. And in the wake of that, Ivan's public appearances were canceled, and um, that's kind of how news of the letter first reached the public. Incidentally, the letter also indicates it's not the first letter of this kind. Uh, There was another similar letter sent out uh, right before Pope Benedict resigned the papacy, and so this letter seems to be a kind of follow-up confirmation that even though we have a new pope, this is still the policy. Now, the uh, February letter that you're referring to, did that get leaked in the same way that this letter did? Uh, I I don't recall seeing the the news reports about that letter. Yeah, if it's been leaked, I haven't seen where it's been leaked. But the new letter says it's simply restating the same policy. Sure. And one interesting point is that... uh, Yvonne has been touring the United States for many years now, uh, having apparitions on site and, and giving presentations on Medjugorje. Why now? What's, what's the motivation for the nuncio to issue this letter now um, when this has been going on for some years? It's, it's hard to say. Um, I could speculate, but I don't think anybody really knows. Uh, it could be that it's part of the, it's due to something that's come up during the um, investigation that the Medjugorje Commission has uh, been conducting on behalf of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. That's a possibility. Um, I don't know that that's the reason. Um, In fact, as far as I'm aware, the Medjugorje Commission has not given any of its findings to the congregation yet. So it's really kind of hard to say. What is different about this is that sort of for the first time, uh, there's express mention of, of the faithful not participating in certain Medjugorje-related events. Um, pre- now, before before it, it related more to pilgrimages explicitly, correct? And this is sort of extending it beyond pilgrimages? Yeah. Um, it, there had previously been discussion of pilgrimages, and specifically pilgrimages authorized by church authorities, uh, either uh, parishes or dioceses. And the ruling was that there couldn't be any any such pilgrimages organized officially by parishes or dioceses um, that would present the Medjugorje phenomenon as authentically supernatural. And so this goes beyond that in two ways. One is it broadens it to things other than pilgrimages. Um, I guess you could say a kind of public appearance by one of the seers is sort of a pilgrimage of a different sort where he comes to you rather than you going to Medjugorje. Um, but it's still a different kind of event. And then secondly, it didn't just talk about, uh, it didn't just apply this to clergy, like pastors or bishops, but to the laity as well. And would you, would you say that this extends 
to all Medjugorje-related activities. I, I think there are many conferences that go on, prayer groups, things of this nature. Is, is this a very wide-reaching uh, statement, or is it really related to very official things such as or those related to the seers visiting and presenting? I think that um, the way the way the language is phrased, I would tend to look at it as somewhere in the middle. Uh, it seems that what they're really concerned about is having the idea that Medjugorje is just to be taken for granted, that there's no question about whether it's a legitimate apparition or not. That's really what they're trying to avoid, having communicated to the faithful. And so if it's a, if it's a Medjugorje event where it's presented as this is just a fact, um, and we're only waiting for it to be vindicated in, 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 in ecclesiastical circles, I think that's what they're trying to avoid. Um, so I would think it applies to that. On the other hand, I don't think it, uh, I, I don't think it rules out all Medjugorje-related events. If uh, an event were organized in a way that you know, was trying to keep an open mind and not just presenting this as to be taken for granted, then I don't think the, I don't think the ruling would apply. Sure. And do you think it's sufficient for organizations or presentations on this matter to use the word reported or alleged in front of the apparition? Is that sufficient to, um, to sort of not presume that this is an apparition, or does it require not promoting the messages and things of this nature? I think that, I mean, thinking with my canon lawyer hat on, not that I'm an actual canon lawyer, I'm not, but... But thinking from that perspective, um, I would say that if you're if you're regularly including the qualifier like reported or alleged or something like that, that's telling people that this is not something you're signing off on. Is it's just a fact, and so it would thus avoid the concern of the CDF. Now they could clarify that and say, oh no, we mean more than this. But until such time as they do so, uh, I would say that just issuing some kind of regular qualifier that signals that. You know, we're not simply saying this is a fact. Um, I think that might uh, satisfy them. At least I would presume it would satisfy them unless they say otherwise. Sure. And and one one big question that everybody's asking, of course, is, is this letter and the timing of this letter, can we tease out anything related to an impending judgment from the Church and what that judgment might be? I don't think we can... Uh, read a whole lot into it in that regard. I think we can infer that um, this was discussed with Pope Francis, and he confirmed that the existing policy announced right before uh, Pope Benedict resigned is okay with him, that he's okay with letting that policy stand, at least for now. Um, but I don't think that tells us a huge amount about what decision will ultimately be made. Um, as I said, as far as I'm aware, the Medjugorje Commission has not reported its findings to the CDF, certainly not in detail. And after it does, uh, I gather the CDF is going to look at them and study them for a while and make a report to the Pope, and then the Pope will need to take time to study it and make up his own mind. And so I don't think that we can read a huge amount from this. I think that uh, people on both sides of the question, both Medjugorje supporters and Medjugorje critics, should be prepared for a possible decision that may not reflect their current views. Um, we sure. always need to be flexible and, and docile to the pastors of the Church, and, uh, and, and I would say to, to people on both sides of the question, don't bet the farm. 
you know, be, be ready for something you may not expect and, and may not initially like. On the other hand, keep it in prayer. Uh, if, uh, regardless of, of your position on Medjugorje, pray for uh, the truth to be found and to emerge through the findings of the Medjugorje Commission and for the Holy Father to make a decision that reflects the truth, whatever the truth may be. Well, thank you very much, Jimmy. You've, uh, you've really gone through this in great detail. And again, your blog is on the National Catholic Register, correct? And, yes, uh, you, people can also read me at jimmyakin.com. And you do these, uh, these nice articles, uh, things you need, things to know and share about such and such. In this case, it's Medjugorje. That's a very nice style, uh, where you break it down with questions and answers of all the basic things that people need to know. So thank you for your great work and thank you for being on the show today. My pleasure. And that was Jimmy Aiken, everyone. Uh, always incredibly informative. Check out more of his articles on the National Catholic Register or jimmyaiken.com. For those of you just tuning in, you are listening to the Miracle Hunter radio show, and I'm your host, Michael O'Neill. I am the Miracle Hunter, and you can read more about Marian apparitions and miracles at my website, miraclehunter.com. Each week we'll be doing a segment entitled 365 Days with Mary. This is a new initiative of Miracle Hunter LLC. In the course of my research over the last 15 years on apparitions, miraculous images, and all things Marian, I've come to realize that for each and every day of the year, somewhere in the world there is a Marian title, feast, or commemoration of an apparition, a miraculous image, a miraculous event. It never ceases to amaze me how much the world loves the Mother of God and celebrates her throughout the year. Now, this is a project I've been working on for probably five years now, but through my research, I've assembled all the dates with their feasts into one resource, and I call this project 365 Days with Mary. The project is available in print form, in the form of a daily engagement calendar or daily planner, as well as online at 365dayswithmary.com, as well as on Facebook and Twitter, where if you like us, you can receive information about the feast day and learn more about our Blessed Mother that day and how she is honored throughout the world. So be sure to like 365 Days with Mary on Facebook and visit the website MiracleHunter.com to see the project. Hopefully you'll enjoy it. The print version, in the form of the Daily Organizer, it makes a great Christmas gift. And again, the website is 365dayswithmary.com. Now I'd like to welcome our next guest to the show. Uh, this is Dr. Kelly Bowring, who is a Catholic theologian and popular speaker. He is the author of the best-selling book, The Secrets, Chastisements, and Triumph of the Two Hearts of Jesus and Mary. His new book, just out, is called The Signs of the Times, The New Ark, and The Coming Kingdom of the Divine Will. His website is twoheartspress.com. We welcome to the Miracle Hunter Show, Dr. Kelly Bowring. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be with you. I wanted to congratulate you on your new show. And, Thank uh, you very much. It's uh, an welcome. exciting endeavor, and we're very pleased to have you on, on the first episode here. Thanks. Great to be with you. I've always enjoyed your website and Miracle Hunter and the work you do, and, and I hope this show does real well. Thanks very much. Now, for, for uh, Kelly, has, uh, Dr. Bowring has written uh, an incredible book uh, that's really... Uh, been quite popular uh, in, in recent years, The Secrets, tri uh, Chastisement, and Triumph. Um, and your new book as well, which is coming out called The Signs of the Times, these books both deal with private revelation, and you've really uh, 
really done an excellent job of synthesizing uh, private revelations from various sources and presenting them to the faithful in such a way that they can sort of see themes of, uh, of, of, of these revelations. Now, can you give us in very basic terms, how would you define private revelation? How, do, how is it distinguished from pu- public revelation, for example? Yeah, that, that's a great first question, Michael. The you know, public revelation, to start with, is the revelation given to us by God in its fullness and completion in Jesus Christ. And it's the, it's the revelation of God that we receive for our salvation. So it's the truth that God gives us to guide us toward getting to heaven. And, and in this sense, the, the primary, uh, you know, the primary source of public revelation is sacred scripture, and then together with apostolic tradition. So the Bible and the Catechism, essentially, are the two sources of scripture and tradition or of public revelation. Private revelation is called private in the sense that it's not part of public revelation, and it typically comes to us in the form of apparitions or locutions. Apparitions are visions, locutions are uh, audible messages from Jesus, from Mary, or from any of the saints or even angels. And typically, the private revelation is given to us, the Catechism says in paragraph 67, to help us to live more fully uh, in a certain period of history. So essentially, the private revelations that come down to us through the ages, uh, typically in our recent times through Marian prophecies and apparitions, are are to really take the public revelation that God gave us in the Bible and in the teachings of the Church and really focus it on a particular group or period in, in the historical moment. And so in that sense, private revelation does not add anything to public revelation or the deposit of faith that was given to us definitively in Jesus Christ and ended with the death of the last Apostle John. Okay. Thank you very much for that explanation. Um, now, there's a great history of uh, how the Church judges private revelation, and uh, sort of going from sort of a legendary or traditional approval process where the faithful rises up in support of uh, a miraculous event to now the more scientific, thorough investigation of uh, miraculous phenomena. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that, how the Church has changed over the years as far as some things that have happened many years ago and in more modern times, the sure. more thorough scientific investigations? Sure. I mean, first of all, when you're talking about the question of the authenticity of a reported private revelation, the very first and most important thing you have to recognize is that the, the authority for authenticating such a reported apparition is the magisterium of the Church, is, is the teaching authority established by Christ, guided by the Holy Spirit of truth, infallibly, uh, that can help us discern whether this is from God or not. Because, you know, there are essentially three possibilities when discerning a reported apparition. The first is that it's, it's, it's a deception or a fraud. You know, the person could be doing it on purpose or or uh, even by being misled by a, a, you know, some sort of perhaps demonic source. Because even Scripture says that the, you know, the, the, 
evil one can masquerade as an angel of light. And so in the first, it could be a fraud. In the second, it could simply be the person themselves is intentionally making it up, you know, either for popularity or sometimes even for money uh, or what have you to gain influence. So that's the second possibility. And then the third is that it could actually be authentic. It, it could and this is coming from God or some type of divine origin. And so you have to keep that in mind that, you know, we, we, want, to, we want to understand that, that whether it's true or not, we need the help of the Church. And so the Church has, through the centuries, particularly up until recent times, as, we, as, we, as we've entered into the age of Mary, if you will, with so many recent reported Marian apparitions, entered into sort of a more official discernment process. And as it looks today, there are three levels of approval that the Church officially uses. Now, the, the first is that the Church has determined that the reported apparition is not worthy of belief. And thus, it, it, you can say it's condemned. You know, it, it's, it's deemed inauthentic. So that would be, you know, something like, uh, you know, Bayside or, or other apparitions that were reported and then get, received some type of official condemnation from the Church. The second would be uh, sort of a uh, interim, kind of often temporary or middle approach, and that is where the Church says there's nothing contrary to the faith in these messages of this reported apparition, but the Church is reserving her judgment at this point. And so that, that's typically the stand a church will take, uh, you know, with an ongoing apparition or with an apparition that recently occurred where she, you know, she's just not in a position to make a final decision or, or to make a decision of full approval. And so this means that the faithful are permitted to give private devotion, to read the messages, to, to go to the pilgrimage site, uh, to spread the messages, as long as they remain in obedience to the Church and the Church's final decision. So this category would be, uh, you know, Garabandal, Magigoria, and, and others like it, particularly the more recent ones. Mm-hmm. The third would be that the Church gives a full approval. And, um, that, that, and even then, the Church is simply saying that this private revelation is deemed worthy of belief. So again, because it's private revelation, the faithful are technically not required to believe it, because it's not part of the revelation for their salvation. But still, the Church doesn't leave it at that sort of minimalistic perspective that that some people, I think, overinterpret or misinterpret in regards to this. I think the Church really is saying, this is good for the faithful, This, this would be beneficial to their devotional life, if they would take it up as a devotion. The Church herself often does it in, in dramatic ways, like full major feast days, uh, like you mentioned a few minutes ago with Our Lady of Guadalupe, December 12th, now being the patroness of all the Americas, and officially on the calendar of the Americas from, from you know, recent years forward. So the Church does simply, doesn't just simply say this is okay. The Church often says this is really good, but at the same time not necessary. And so that's, you know, that would be certainly things like Fatima and Lourdes and, and, and some of those private revelations. Right. And uh, one thing that you cover in your books is sort of the discussion of prophecy, where saints throughout the ages have uh, have received
received uh, revelations and have expressed them as prophecy uh, for the faithful. Now, prophecy presents sort of an interesting challenge because if it does not come true, if it was sort of contingent on the faithful showing greater acts of faith or through prayer, intercessory prayer or whatever, um, these prophecies may not show themselves in, in the way that we would hope in that it would prove them to be true. Can you discuss that a little bit, the contingent prophecies and how we navigate that as the faithful reading the prophecies of, of saints, especially of, old, of an older day? Yeah, and I think, you know, I think it's very important to understand that prophecies, which come to us from saints, from popes, uh, from private revelations, like some of the ones we've been talking about, um, like, for example, Our Lady of Fatima saying that um, in the end, after this time of upheaval that we're still transitioning through, her Immaculate Heart would triumph. You have to understand that, in general, prophecies have uh, typically, but not always, a conditional aspect. And that's important to understand. Some people just, you know, just sort of whitewash it and say, oh, prophecy is conditional. But that's not necessarily the case. So you, you can look at it one of two ways. It could be conditional, or it's, or it's going to happen no matter what, and God's already revealed it beforehand. So certainly you can see the latter, for example, in Scripture, um, when, when God said to Abraham in the Old Testament that uh, his descendants would be taken captivity for 400 years as punishment of their sins, and then eventually led to freedom. And, you know, of course, that eventually happens with their exile to Egypt. And, of course, you can see it at the Last Supper when Jesus said to Peter, uh, before this night is over, you will deny me three times. And those were not conditional. Those were prophetic statements given, you know, by the Lord of future events that God wanted to give to individuals and eventually, you know, in recent times in the Church, to the whole Church, to, to tell us what's coming. And not, not for the reason of instilling fear, because often the prophecies are about, uh, you know, divine punishments or, or, or uh, you know, times of evil that are, that are upcoming and, and ensuing, but, but not to cause fear, but to prepare us, to show us that God wanted to give us this message, to show He's in control, and that He's going to guide us through it and give us hope. And then finally, more importantly, these types of prophecies are often given accompanied by uh, you know, a divine message of how to handle the upcoming time of you know, evil or, or divine punishment. And so really, it's, it becomes more important what God is asking us to do in the midst of those unfolding prophecies, rather than just the knowledge that the prophecies are coming. So that, that's kind of prophecies that are determined. The second type is conditional prophecies. And you can see these, for example, in the Scriptures when, when uh, Jonah goes to the Ninevites, for example. You know, he's sent by the Lord. He gives a prophecy that they're you know, going to be punished by God and, and suffer, and, and then they, they make an act of contrition and reparation, three days fasting, and God relents. God, God averts, you know, his decision to punish because of their contrition. And, and that's a conditional prophecy. So in a certain sense, I think today, when you're looking at the, the great prophecies that have come to us in our times about this generation and what's coming up here in the next few years, uh, you know, whether you're talking about the approval ones like Fatima and their final fulfillment, or you're talking about Garibandal and Magigori and other more recent ones that have been approved, like Akita, you're, you're talking about both 
prophecies that are going to unfold. You know, the book of Revelation is going to happen. It, it's a prophetic word that's already determined and clear and going to be unfolding, you know, at some point toward the end of history, if not in the current generation. At the same time, there is a conditional aspect. God is saying, for those who lift up their lives in prayer and in penance, remember Lord, remember Fatima, the message was penance, penance, penance. For those who engage in penance on behalf of the sinful world, God will use your prayers, your sacrifices, your fastings, your rosaries, to help bring his mercy to the sinful fallen human race of this time, to help avert the, the divine punishment, to help slow down the path of evil that is unfolding. And so in that sense, there's, there's a conditional aspect to these events, even as they unfold throughout their even determined unfolding. Wonderful. Thank you for that explanation. That's, that's very clear. Uh, final question before we wrap up here. I wanted to talk a little bit about your your new book, uh, yeah, Signs thanks. of the Times, uh, The New Ark and the Coming Kingdom of the Divine Will. If you would, uh, just give us a very brief uh, description of your, just an overview of the book and how it differs from uh, past books. It seems to me that you made a very concerted effort to only use approved sources for this one, uh, saints and approved apparitions, uh, to construct this book. So if you would uh, touch on that a little bit. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, the, the new book, The Signs of the Times, is, is you know just about to be released here, probably the beginning of December 2013. And, um, you know, I, I essentially got the title from that scripture passage where Jesus in, in Matthew 16, you know, says toward the end of times, he, he sort of gives out a admonition about, uh, you know, paying attention to things as they unfold. He says, when, when it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And so it's really a, a, you know, a, an indication from Jesus that uh, as we approach the latter times into the, you know, the end times themselves, that we've got to be alert, we've got to be awake to, to the heavenly messages of our times coming to us through all the various prior revelations, to the signs going on in the world and even in nature around us. And, and in, in this sense, I wrote the book with that in mind. The, the, the subtitle is the, the New Ark and the Coming Kingdom of the Divine Will. Because in my research, I realized that God is giving us the greatest gift He's given to the human race since the time of Christ and the sacraments and the teaching authority of the Church. He's now giving us Our Lady, and particularly Her Immaculate Heart. And so it is the Immaculate Heart of Our Lady that God is giving to us as the new ark. You know, in the times of Noah, all of those people who entered the ark, there just happened to be eight of them, uh, they were spared from the, you know, the tribulation. They, they survived, they were taken care of, they were protected, uh, they, no harm came to them, and they transitioned to the other side. Well, God is doing the same thing today for for the whole human race who, who will respond, assuring us that we will have a similar type of divine protection and guidance if we enter into the receiving of the gift He's given to us in this current tribulation, and that is Mary's Immaculate Heart, so the new ark. And then finally, the, the third part of the book is the coming kingdom of the divine will. 
and really, the, you know, the, the best news about, you know, the, the, the times at hand and the struggles, the turmoils, the tensions, the upheavals that we're already beginning to experience, and we know if, if we've been paying attention or unfolding before us, is the other side. And that is that it's not, it's not defeat, and it's not the end of the world. It is the new era of peace. It is the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, the, the new reign of the Sacred and Eucharistic Heart of Jesus, and then most particularly, uh, the, the coming of the Kingdom of the Divine Will, where the prophecies of our time are telling us that it will be the time of which Jesus gives us his, his new spiritual, earthly reign of the millennium of peace that the Book of Revelation talks about. He will reign through the Eucharist, He will reign in our hearts, he will reign spiritually in the world, and he will do so by finally fulfilling the petition of the Our Father, where we say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so essentially the book talks much about what we know about that and what's going to come on the other side of what we're living through now and unfolding into the era of peace. And finally, you, you did mention that you're right, this book, unique from the other two books that I wrote on Arian prophecy, is specific in the sense that I only use Church-approved and, and, you know, and recognized sources, over 45 of them, from popes and saints and approved apparitions and prophecies. And essentially I did this because, you know, when I wrote the first two books, some people would occasionally ask, well, why isn't the Church teaching this? Why isn't the Church saying this? if this is what's happening in this generation, and, and these prophecies, and, and the book of Revelation is unfolding, why, why isn't anybody saying it? And so this book shows us that, you know, from 45-plus major sources of the Church herself, that, uh, that, the, that these are the times, and, and details about what these times are going to entail, and the unfolding of these times, and, the, and what's coming on the other side. So in that sense, it really answers that question. The Church herself think, is thinking this and teaching it, and handing it on, and in this book you'll be able to read it and see exactly what the Church herself thinks about the times we're living in. Great. Thank you so much, Kelly. That was a very clear uh, description of what the book is about, and um, I have read the book, and I, I quite enjoyed it. The, this has been Kelly Bowring. Um, he is the author of The Signs of the Times, The New Ark, and The Coming Kingdom of the Divine Will. You can find out more and get the book at twoheartspress.com. Thanks very much, Kelly. Thank you, Michael. God bless. That was Dr. Kelly Bowring, everyone. Fascinating stuff. Um, he does a really nice job of synthesizing from a wide view all the apparitions, locutions, and prophecies that we've received in the history of the Catholic Church. Definitely a tough task and always fascinating to see what he comes up with. Again, his website is twoheartspress.com. For those of you just tuning in, you are listening to the Miracle Hunter radio show, and I'm your host, Michael O'Neill. I am the Miracle Hunter, and you can read more about Marian apparitions and other miracles at my website, MiracleHunter.com. Now, earlier in the show, we asked a trivia question given to us from Catholic Pub Trivia. Each week, I'll be asking a trivia question and giving out a prize uh, for a caller that gets it right. This week, we're giving away a framed image of a piece of artwork titled The Faces of Mary. It's a photo mosaic of over 100 images of Our Lady that forms a large, beautiful picture of the Madonna and Child. Trivia, trivia questions are generously provided by an organization called Catholic Pub Trivia, 
They partner with a local Catholic church, school, or religious organization to host fundraisers at local establishments. For more information on Catholic Pub Trivia or to organize an event in your area, please visit catholicpubtrivia.com. Now the question was, what Marian Apparition movie won the award for Best Picture at the first Golden Globe Awards in 1944, along with four Oscars and eight more Oscar nominations? I have a, I've been told we have a caller with the answer. Hello, uh, who am I speaking with and what is your answer? My name is Erica. Okay, Erica. Welcome to the show. I think that I know this one. I know that my grandmother told me that this is one of her favorites when she was a girl. Is it, is it the song of Bernadette? Yes, that's correct. It's the song of Bernadette. Jennifer Jones won the Best Actress Oscar for portraying St. Bernadette, uh, who received apparitions at Lourdes in France. So thank you very much, Erica. You win the prize, and we will get that off to you. Okay, thanks. And that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank Jimmy Aiken and Kelly Bowring for joining us on this, our inaugural episode of Miracle Hunter. Remember to check out MiracleHunter.com and 365DaysWithMary.com. Thank you for joining me on Miracle Hunter, where it doesn't matter if you are a skeptic or a believer, but it's always worth the hunt.